Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 18th episode, 18, ah, episode of uh, PEM Podcast, the Psychic Eye Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Laurie, with my fabulous sister, Sandy, um, coming to you uh, on a Friday afternoon. How's the weather over where you are? It's, it's freaking freezing cold here and windy and just shitty. I'm tired of shitty weather. It's classic New England. It goes from being balmy and humid to cold and yeah. then back to being i don't know partly sunny then rain like it's you know it's just you know it's, if you don't like yeah. the weather wait a minute and yeah it changes Here yeah it's just been like i i went for a run today and it was so windy. it was like 22 mile an hour winds and it was great going out but coming back i was like in it was in my face and all i kept thinking was like i just want to hawaii right <laughs> just, right i just want to go to hawaii Oh, well, man. I um picking up on the egg story. Um, <laughs> for my, those of you who are just joining us and did not hear about the egg story, listen to my last week's podcast. Listen to last week's podcast. Gonna get even with the guy who was giving her a lot of trouble and was gonna egg his car with one egg that she lobbed at 5 30 in the morning, dressed in black, you know, very covert. Um, and um was careful not to put any fingerprints on the eggshell just in case, you know, the crime of the century got back to um area police. And she missed the car. I did. <laughs> so epic fail number one. Epic fail number two is that I had to have my driveway redone. And in the process, there were a lot of rocks that ended up being unearthed to create a new space in my driveway. And the contractor was frustrated that there were so many boulders because it cost him money to dispose of the boulders. So he left a couple of bigger rocks in my yard. And um, I thought, okay, maybe I could to run into. That's, yeah, that's pretty good. much could maybe use them for landscaping or whatever. So I noticed yesterday that my neighbor across the street is having a whole new rock wall put in. And I'm like, awesome. I'll just take my extra rocks and contribute. Right. So I <laughs> managed let to them get, know. No, just it's, like so it's completely dark. Yeah. It stealth. It's completely dark out. I'm again, oh dressed in black from a workout Oh my God, and nobody's got lights on. Right. And I'm hilarious. like, okay, maybe I can stealthily move some of these rocks over. So yeah. I, picked up like four or five and they were smaller and kind of yeah. created them in the discarded rock pile. And then the big one, and I'm trying to lift it up and I can't, and then I'm rolling it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to look like an idiot rolling this across the street. See, so and just, you would be the person that would be rolling it across the street and, a, and get and hit a by a car. Would, yeah. No, get hit drive. by a car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I didn't risk it. I now sitting on the curb of my <laughs> property line waiting. Just yeah. take a sledgehammer, and, you know, well, that would be your way of dealing with things. Mine is like, right. <laughs> I know let's smash this. It's a workout mm, that that's, that would be, yes, I could, I could definitely do that. Oh Lord. Um, Sandy and I were talking yesterday. We were talking about our grandmother who was just this extraordinary woman. She had six kids um, and um, she uh, had cancer in her mid fifties um, and um was ovarian no uterine it was uterine cancer and it spread to her brain and um this was back in the early 1960s so she just never stood a chance unfortunately um but one of my aunts um has said several times that our grandmother would do 45 minutes of calisthenics every morning and i told sandy this and she's like that's where you get it <laughs> like yeah that's where i get it from mm -hmm. so anyway wow we have we have uh Sans and I have discussed this case um, in depth. It's super 
interesting. It's a super interesting case from so many points of view. And, and the hard part is like, there's just no justice, you know, but in a lot of these cases, there's no justice. That's there why we no do justice. them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this one in particular, just, man, it, it's a, it's a gut punch. I'll tell you, but before we get to that, um, let's talk books. Let's talk books. Um, so this is from the Ghost Hunter Mystery series that I wrote. There are 10, 10 books in this series. This was my um, darker version. So Abby's like, not light and fun, but she's funny um, and a little lighter. This is like diving into a little bit of um, the occult a little bit more. Um, so MJ is a... Um, uh, medium and she is with her best friend Gilly and her I think husband in this book um or fiance fiance um in this book they are investigating um a possession a man who is possessed and uh they set up cameras to watch him um because he's his life is basically being ruined by whatever spirit is coming into him and of course the cameras by him leaving that leaving the uh, townhouse where he lives and returning an hour later covered in blood. So um, he is the brother of, um, of MJ's former love, former love uh, fiance. So her former love has moved on, is engaged to be married. This woman's brother is the subject of the book. So this book actually, when I was writing it, um, I'd never gotten creeped out writing any of the MJ stories. I just, it just was like, you know, um, and this particular novel, I remember I was sitting in the living room and it was pitch black outside. This is kind of, I think it was like uh, January, February timeframe. So it was dark early and I'm, I'm writing, I'm on deadline trying to kick out the pages. And there's a text that comes in that is, that it, and I don't recognize the number. It's from an unknown number. And um, it's, it's creepy, right? It's kind of like, um, yeah, I'm, you know, um, you can't figure out who this is, blah, 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 blah. And so I'm writing, you know, about possession in this really creepy scene and this text. And I kept asking like, who are you? And they wouldn't identify themselves. Um, so uh, I, that's when I stopped writing these at night. <laughs> I'm like, I will, when the sun is shining. Yeah. And it ended up being, um, a, a, a friend of mine that I hadn't connected with in a very long time. Um, and boy, did I give her shit about it because yeah. she's also, no longer a friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, she turned into a friend of me pretty quick. Um, so, uh, yeah. So this is a nice, creepy, you know, if you like, if you like a little bit of a darker story, um, this might be up your alley. So a the ghoul next next door Victoria Lord sold sold everywhere books are sold do I have an, a fantastic anecdote this week so I've told you a little bit so I did a reading for a woman um and this was like I think my favorite reading that I've done um truly this was just an extraordinary reading so this woman um I guess I'd read a year ago, year and a half ago, I'm not quite sure. But she had said, you told me my mom would be crossing over in March. And she did, she crossed over in March. And um, she's like, I just want to know that my mom is okay. Now, normally I'm like, 
okay, they just got over there. I don't know if I'm going to end up on the tilt a world because they're trying to still get their sea legs. I don't know how this will go, but um, kind of immediately upon her coming onto my screen comes this energy, right? And it was fine. And um, her mother was so joyous, so joyous um, to be freed from a body that was just failing, you know? And she'd been in hospice for a couple of weeks and she'd been mute and she really couldn't eat. And so the first thing she told me was that she was reunited with um, her sister. And um, my client said, well, she didn't have a sister. I'm like, sister-in-law. She had a sister, sister-in-law, sister figure. She's like, yes, my, um, my aunt, her sister-in-law, they were best friends. And I said, well, she's showing me a table, right? With tears, uh, uh, tears levels covered in cupcakes and brownies and cookies and cake and cupcakes. And um, that was their thing. They were, they loved to bake treats for each other. So I loved that when this woman crossed over, um, there was this big kind of display, you know, this woman had been baking, you know, waiting for her um, beloved sister to cross. So that was the first thing she encountered. And then this spirit was so full of energy and, and um, joy just because she could keep moving because she could mo you know, move and she was limber and nothing hurt. And um, in my mind's eye, she did a cartwheel. Like literally she did, I've never had a spirit do a cartwheel before, but she did a cartwheel. So I told this to my, my client and she just laughed. And um, I said, your mother, I, I heard um, somewhere over the rainbow, right? <clears throat> Which, okay, that's, you know, simple for like crossing, right? <clears throat> so I said, your mother is very grateful to you um, because you helped her get over the rainbow, cross the rainbow. And she goes, oh my God, Victoria, your funeral's next week. And the song we're going to play is somewhere over the rainbow. Right. Wow. So, um, yeah. yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. And then I said, um, I said, uh, your mom's showing me a piano who plays a piano. This, this mom, um, was, a, was a, um, an accomplished pianist. So I said, well, she's going to communicate, um, through songs that have a lot of piano music in them. And I said, you know, so like, um, um, Josh Groban. And immediately after I said that, this woman goes like, not him, the bubble guy. <laughs> so I go, oh, Michael Buble. <laughs> she goes, I have a whole playlist of Michael Buble songs, right? Um, she loves Michael Buble. So um, I, I forgot he even played, played the piano, the bubble guy. I thought that was hilarious. Well, he also does that soda, uh, seltzer, boop, boop, um, you know, I don't watch TV commercials. Okay. Well, he's, he's, yeah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so he's big into, oh, bubbles, seltzer. I get it. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Okay. But he, he's in, he's kind of the spokesperson for a specific, I can't think of the name of the soda line or seltzer line, but it's, it's it. like buble or bubble. Oh, gotcha. 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 And then, um, she kept talking about, um, um, there was going to be a, a birthday centered around a pool and it was going to be a pool party and the mother was planning on attending. Um, so I said, you know, we'll take a lot of pictures at whoever's this birthday is. I said, I feel like it's in June. And she goes, that's my birthday. She goes, we have a pool outside, right? So they're going to do a pool party around the pool. Mom's going to be there. And um, I said, take a lot of pictures because I think your mom is going to try and show up. Now this doesn't mean like an apparition. This means like a little orb. So mm -hmm. if you're missing someone and it's a special event, um, 
uh, take a lot of pictures. And if you see like a little green, blue kind of orb um, bouncing around, um, it's not a reflection. Um, it's actually a little spirit saying hello. Um, and then this woman from the other side, this mom, um, was talking about how beautiful, how beautiful heaven is, how, how beautiful the other side is. And she gave me just a, just a tiny little window peek into it. And she was, she showed me in my mind's eye, a sequoia. Mm -hmm. And, um, it turns out my client's sister, um, goes to the, um, um, I don't know where the sequoias are. They're up, up in Northern California. Yeah, the Redwood Forest, I think. Yeah, aren't they? Yeah, she yeah. goes up there Northern all the time. California. Sequoias are like her thing, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. So the mom was like, the trees are all sequoia height. They're all huge. They're all yeah. enormous. And um, the feeling that I had was like the sky was the color of a beautiful sunrise or sunset, sort of like that pinky purple. And um, I felt like um, the sunrise, the sun basically like was never directly overhead. It was kind of always dawn or dusk, you know, kind of feeling, um, almost like a twilighty kind of, um, um, look to it, you know, and I don't know, cause this was just a tiny little window, um, that was opened up, uh, to the other side. But what I saw of it was just rolling, beautiful green hills, trees, all the size of sequoias, um, this beautiful pink, you know, dusty rose kind of, uh, sky and, um, you know, all I kept thinking was like, I, I want to go to there. <laughs> Not yet, please. Just... Yeah. So then um, to identify her sister, to make sure that she was identifying her sister-in-law, um, I asked my client, I'm like, what's the deal with Ireland? Who came from Ireland? Well, she came, her sister-in-law came from Ireland. So just a ton, a ton of proof of I'm here, I'm with so-and-so, life is fantastic, I'm joyous. Um and the, the last thing she left me with, which I thought was really adorable, my client asked, what can I do to honor my mom at her funeral? And um, her mom um, uh, started to talk about, um, you know, a song that mixed um, partying with dancing. She wanted everybody to party and have a good time. She was like, no tears, nobody's sad, just play, you know, really good dance music. Um, so um, celebrate good times. That was it. She put celebrate good times um, in my head. So from her standpoint, from the mom's standpoint, it is celebrating good times. She's made mm -hmm. it across and she's, yeah. you know, wonderful and um, isn't sick anymore, isn't old anymore, um, can eat all the treats she wants. And that was another line she threw out at me. She was like, over here, you can eat anything you want and never gain weight. <laughs> well, that's like someone I know that has crossed that communicated artisan pizza over here. I'm fine. I got artisan pizza over here. And I always, right? I was like, does that mean this person's eating pizza? Like really <laughs> pizza? Yeah. Apparently yeah. you can eat as much as you want and never yeah. gain weight Yeah, because you pick your own, um, you pick your own, um, silhouette. So I need to get there right now. I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of an extreme. Where's diet. my ticket yes. crossing over to get thin. <laughs> <laughs> and eat whatever I want. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a way for John Edward to make money, right? Yeah. Like crossing over to get thin. Um <laughs> you can be as fat as you want here because mm -hmm. you're gonna be thin there. Because over there, calories don't matter, they don't count. You can pack <clears throat> it on, you can eat anything that you want over there. Um, so I just I 
that was a glimpse into the other side that was so rich with detail. And I've never had a spirit show it to me like that before. So um, I felt just so blessed um, to have um, had this woman come, come to me um, and ask for a reading to connect with her mom. Cause it was, it was just an, I don't remember my readings. Like I never remember my, that one I remember and I'm going to remember cause it was really extraordinary. It was really amazing. So yeah. It, yeah, it is really true that you never, yeah, it, it is true that you don't remember readings because <laughs> when you give them to me. I'm like, don't you remember when you said, and now no. I've just learned to not even say that to you. Right. Just, you remember when you said blah, blah, blah. No, you yeah. still say it. You remember I do. when I'm like, no, no. Makes just me no. feel so loved. <laughs> but there, you know, um, I don't know a psychic that does hold on to those. Um, uh, John Edwards says they're borrowed thoughts. They are borrowed. You know, it's kind of like, you're just sort of the telephone. It's not like the telephone has a, re, a re, an answering machine, a recording. So it just kind of comes through um, and off it goes. But right after that reading, um, I wrote down everything I could remember because um, it was so special. Um, yeah, it was just really amazing. It was really amazing. So much proof, so much proof that she was observing her family, that she was in, uh, uh, had so much joy and was, you know, not at peace. It's so interesting to me when people ask is, you know, so-and-so at peace. And I'm like, no, they're out doing a jig. <laughs> well, I mean, they're that, partying. The, the statement rest in peace, you know, if they've suffered or they've been unhappy or having a difficult time, you want them right. to be okay on the other side. I think that's what that is supposed to mean. Right? Not literally like resting me, in peace. Yeah. Right. For, but for me, it's always been this sort of passive, you, you cross over and you're like passive, you know, you're an angel just floating heart, above yeah, listening yeah. to heart music, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. Like stupid. <laughs> My wings and cherubs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> floating on a cloud. Right. You know, that's why I'm not fat. Cause um, I'm floating yeah, on a cloud. And wings. And like, yeah. Yeah. Someone had asked, actually, um, and I thought it was a really great question on, um, I think our last podcast, someone had asked, um, are Christians with Christians and Jews with Jews and Protestants with Protestants, like, are there separate kind of things? And um, I, the, the biggest thing that I can tell you is that that side, we mirror that side. So if we go to a Catholic church and we belong to a Catholic church, that's where Sorry, that's where I have this being thing that's like not down. supposed to like, <laughs> right? This whole contraption and I keep hitting it. Um, so if you are, you know, very religious in a Catholic sense and you, you know, love baby Jesus and not adult Jesus and you love the Jesus, um, that's where you go. You go to hang with all of the other Jesus lovers. And if you're Jewish, you go to hang with all the Jewish people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's like you, you're locked in. You know, I think just the way that we go to church and then we intermingle with everybody else socially, um, I think that's exactly what happens on the other side as well. So um, just always remember that our world is a mirror for there without the murder, violence, <laughs> hate, <laughs> oppression, poverty, yeah. Yeah. sickness, illness, yeah. hunger. <laughs> but so we mirror much, there. Yeah. <laughs> we get all the bonus stuff. Right. Greenhouse gases, no greenhouse gases in heaven. <laughs> no methane. Yeah, no methane. <laughs> All right. Oh, hilarious. Okay. So, so um, take it away. This is this this case is so freaking, it's so layered. It's so layered. It's crazy. Okay. 
Build it up a little more, please, so I can disappoint in the process. Stop. <laughs> Stop. All no. right. So this Go is ahead. about, uh, this case, this week's case is about the investor passenger murders. Uh, 40 years have passed since the massacre of eight people on a fishing boat called the investor, making this unsolved mystery the largest mass murder in Alaskan history. On September 6, 1982, in a tiny fishing village harbor in Craig, Alaska, eight people, including Mark Colehurst and his pregnant wife, Irene, both age 28, their two children, Kimberly, age five, and John, age four, and four teenage deckhands, Chris Heyman, aged 18, Mike Stewart, Jerome Kawan, and Dave Moon, all age 19, were all shot to death aboard a fishing boat named The Investor. Shortly after their lives ended, to destroy any incriminating evidence, the killer returned to the crime scene on the afternoon of September 7th and set the boat on fire. Although this case is officially closed and a primary suspect was put on trial twice, no one is serving time for these tragic murders. Who performed these senseless executions and why remains a mystery. Based in Blaine, Washington, Mark Colehurst was a hardworking and well-respected go-getter who dreamed of retiring at age 50. He had started fishing in his early 20s and was quite skilled at it, periodically earning six figures for his loud, sorry, large bounties. But Mark also had a cocky attitude and a quick temper, which occasionally resulted in fisticuffs. Shortly before the final days of the commercial fishing season on September 5th, 1982, Mark and his crew arrived in Craig, Alaska, which had a very small population of only 575 people. And they were aboard the Investor, which was one of the most expensive high-tech commercial fishing boats of its kind in the region. That Labor Day weekend, the sleepy town of Craig was booming with commercial fishermen, all clamoring for space in the tiny port located off the west coast of Prince Wales Island. The state-of-the-art Investor stood out among the various fishing vessels pulling into port to unload their catch, in part because of its largesse, but also because the Investor had tied a broom to her mast, indicating that the crew had made a clean sweep with their catch. Upon pulling into the E.C. Phillips cold storage dock, Mark and his crew were triumphant, triumphant over the 77,000-pound catch of salmon, which was valued at about $33,000. Given that the port was overcrowded with fishing boats, the investor had to tie up next to the, the decade, which was tied to the Defiance, which was moored to the dock. And despite such close quarters, the port had a festive, boisterous energy about it with everyone celebrating the end of the fruitful fishing season. Glad to have a night off, the investor's four teenage deckhands headed into port. <clears throat> Michael, Mark's cousin, and Chris, the son of one of Mark's good friends, took off together to get something to eat, and longtime crewman Jerome and his friend Dave, who had just joined the investor in early August, headed into town to grab a bite, call home, and buy some weed. The Coles... The Colehurst were excited to celebrate their bounty, as well as Mark's 28th birthday. So Mark, his wife, and high school sweetheart Irene, and their two children, Kimberly and John, headed to Ruth Ann's for dinner. Over dinner, Mark and Irene talked about Irene's plans to return home to Blaine, Washington the next day with their two children so that the kids could get ready to start school after the long holiday weekend. Despite having unloaded a significant bounty earlier that day, Mark had to borrow $100 from a friend to cover his dinner. As Mark preferred to be paid in a lump sum with a check at the end of the season for his total receipts. As the restaurant was nearing close and tables were being cleared, a waitress witnessed a man enter the restaurant and quickly engaged Mark in a verbal argument. From there, Mark and his family returned to the investor at around 9.30 in the evening, just as a storm had begun to form. At about 10.30, four-year-old John, who bunked in the steering room, stuck his head out of the pilot house to say hello to a crewman on the decade. That was the last time anyone in port would see the young boy alive. Hours later, according to police, 
A killer crept onto the investor in the darkness of the stormy night and executed his victims, several of whom investigators believe were shot in their bunks in quick succession with either a 22 caliber pistol or rifle. Around 6 a.m. the following morning, the un unidentified gunman waving nonchalantly to a nearby skipper captained the 58-foot, $850,000 investor a mile out of Craig to the secluded bay of nearby Fish Egg Island. Once anchored, the killer attempted to sink the yacht by allowing seawater to flood the engine cooling system. He then motored back to Craig and docked the investor's skiff. When the investor was still afloat the next day, the killer returned that afternoon with a can of gasoline and set the investor ablaze, reducing the crime scene and the bodies of the dead to charred ash. The fire quickly engulfed the ship, making it impossible for other vessels to try and save anyone aboard. It took more than four hours to control the flames enough so that the authorities could board the smoldering ruin and confirm that there weren't any survivors. Extinguishing the fire ultimately took two full days and was finally put out on September 8th. Troopers soon found some of the victims, all burned beyond recognition. Dental records confirmed the remains of Mark, his wife Irene and daughter Kimberly, and Mark's cousin, Michael Stewart. The coroner had determined that Mark and Irene had each been shot several times, with Mark suffering multiple gunshot wounds to the face. Two days later, investigators found more human remains, bones, teeth, and a torso, and speculated, although never positively identified, that these were the remains of crew members Dean Moon, Jerome Kwan, and Chris Heyman. No remains were ever found of Mark's son, John, who was four years old. They think that he may have been sleeping in the area hardest hit by the fire, the steering room where the fire likely accelerated with gas, a gas stove explosion. The coroner also found that the victims had died before the intentionally set fire as there were no carbon monoxide in their lungs. Blood alcohol, blood alcohol tests suggested that the adults were drunk and that Dean and Jerome were also high on marijuana. Police circulated a, a description of the man witnesses say they saw shuttling back and forth between the investor and the harbor on the investor skiff before vanishing after the boat was ablaze. The man in question was about 150 pounds, a white male in his early 20s with a pockmarked face wearing a baseball cap and glasses. It took nearly two years before police arrested 23-year-old John Peel in his hometown of Bellingham, Washington. Based upon his similarity to the description of the suspect, but no witness could I definitively confirm that John was the driver of the investor skiff. John had once worked for Mark in 1980 and even dated Mark's sister for a brief period of time. But because John was often late and somewhat lazy, Mark fired John from his crew for alleged drinking and drug abuse. Bad blood between the two men ensued, and at the beginning of the summer of 1982, John, anxious to find work as a crewman, made his way from Washington to Kakechen, uh, Alaska, where he met up with Mark. When Mark turned down John's request for a ride to Craig, John ended up pawning his watch to secure plane fare to Craig. And fortunately, he was able to join the crew of the Libby 8, which was captained by Larry Dumerant Jr. At the time of the murders, the Libby 8 was moored right behind the investor. When interviewed by police, John claimed to be asleep aboard the Libby 8, although his alibi could not be confirmed by Larry Dumerant. As police mapped their timeline of the events surrounding the night of September 5th, they discovered that John was the person that sold weed to Jerome and Dean during their visit to shore. Police theorized that John, Jerome, and Dean all returned to the investor and continued to party following and following dinner at Ruth Ann's where they were joined by the Colehurst family along with Chris Heyman and Mike Stewart. Larry Demerant reported that at about 2 a.m. he heard a scream and the sound of several pops. And when, when he went to investigate the noise, he saw a man aboard the investor carrying a rifle and wearing a baseball cap. Police believe that around that time, Mark and John got into a heated argument that quickly escalated and John shot and killed all eight passengers of the investor.
Following the murders, police believe John motored the investor to nearby Fish Egg Island Bay and in hopes of quickly sinking the boat op by opening the butterfly valves. To make a quick escape, John allegedly stripped the hydraulic system while deploying the investor's skiff and motored to EC Cold Storage, where he disembarked to make new travel arrangements to leave the area. He had originally been scheduled to leave Craig with the crew of the Libby 8. Hours later, when the investor remained buoyant, John allegedly purchased 25 gallons of gas and used the skiff to return to the fishing yacht and set it on fire. Despite their theory, there was no physical evidence tying John to the murders. The case against him was largely circumstantial. However, prosecutors were able to secure an indictment against John Peel following a grand jury hearing. During his 1986 trial, prosecutors noted that John had failed a polygraph test and they focused their case on the fact that there had been bad blood between Mark and John. The prosecution's theory was that John, anchored at being fired, flew into a rage and shot everyone aboard the investor and used the fire to cover up his crime. Damning testimony came from skipper Larry DeMont as he stated that he saw John aboard the investor on the night of the killings, and another witness said he sold John Peel gas hours before the fire. John's attorneys promoted the idea that it was possible someone else could have committed the crimes, perhaps a hired killer or a crewman whose body was never identified. They promoted this idea that only an experienced gunman could successfully murder eight people with a 22 caliber rifle, as the rifle would have had to have been reloaded uh, during the shooting spree and he would have had to have had the ability to subdue his male victims as he went about the killings. Craig Alaska's former police chief was convinced the killings were the result of a drug deal gone bad. Quote, I've heard a, a lot of talk about a drug boat, explained Shapley, who spent days sifting through the ashes of the investor for bone fragments and teeth. They say Craig floated on drugs in those days. Six months of testimony and six days of deliberations resulted in a hung jury and a mistrial. John Peel's second trial began in January of 1988, making it the state's longest running prosecution. And at $2 million, it's also the most expensive. The second trial consisted of three months of testimony and four days of deliberation that ended up acquitting John. Two years after his acquittal, John Peel filed a $177 million civil suit against the state of Alaska for wrongful prosecution. Seven years later, he settled for a reported $900,000, a sum that he largely needed to help cover his legal fees. Believing that they caught the right guy, Alaska state troopers considered the case closed and are no longer looking for the killer. They got the right guy, McNeil says, just because someone is acquitted doesn't mean they're innocent. It just means there's not enough evidence to show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. My sources for this story include People Magazine Investigates, Murder at Sea, People Explains, The Mystery of Who Massacred Eight, including a family on a fishing boat in Alaska by Johnny Dodd and Adam Carlson, December 11th, 2017. People.com, Exonerated Suspect and Unsolved Alaska Fishing Boat, Mass Murder Breaks His Silence by Johnny Dodd, December 8, 2017. New York Daily News, Massacre on a Fishing Boat, and There Was Never a Conviction, Mara Boffson, 331.19, and then The Investor Massacre, Eight Souls on Board, True Crime Podcast, Gray Area 2020. So I think it's pretty clear who the culprit was. Yeah, Peel. One hundred percent, it was Peel. It wasn't yeah. a drug deal gone bad. It wasn't any of that. So um, let's start from the beginning. Okay, from the very beginning, when Mark fires John Peel, I believe that he fired John because John was. Um, I did an automatic writing on those sands, and the the thing that stood out to me when I was um, picking the brain of my crew on the other side was that they said um, John was upset. Um, furious because of the lost income and lost opportunity. And the opportunity had this flavor of drugs associated with it. So I think what he was doing was um, 
using the front of being this deckhand to actually um, deal drugs in every port that they stopped in. And I think John, or excuse me, I think Mark was like, I have this $850,000 boat. It's my whole life savings. The Coast Guard comes in, finds drugs here. They confiscate my boat, get the fuck off. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the source of the rift between the two people. And when John wanted a ride to um, that island in Alaska, what is it? Craig? So, Craig? Yeah, when he wanted to go from Ketchikan to Craig, Craig, and, right, and Mark John was turned like, him down. No way. Mark was Mark was Mark no was way. like no way because yeah. I always get that mixed up. Mark was uh, was like absolutely not because um, he knows that this is going to be uh, Labor Day weekend, and um, there will definitely be Coast Guard patrolling the waters um, looking for trouble. Especially Please. since the fishing season was going to close right that weekend. So you can't fish. And I think that's probably, probably right. partly why it was so heavily patrolled. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, Mark didn't want this shit anywhere near his boat. You know, this is his most expensive boat in the whole Harbor. Um, and they would, they would, if they found drugs on that boat, confiscated, done. It's, mm -hmm. he can't get it back. It's gone. Mm -hmm. So, um, and he could be prosecuted. So I don't think he wanted John anywhere near his boat. He goes to dinner, birthday celebration. He and Irene have too much to drink. I think that they went back to the boat. Um, I can't decide whether Mark stayed up or went to bed with Irene. I believe the kids went to bed. I believe Irene went to bed. Um, I kind of feel that Mark went to bed as well because everybody was drunk. That's kind of what I feel. And then he woke up at some point because the party was ongoing on the deck. So you had um, Jerome and Dean and John, right? On the deck yes. and they're partying. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> my thinking is Mark went to sleep, right? Jerome, Dean and John come back. It's late. It's actually Dave. It's actually Dave. Sorry. Oh, it's Dave. Jerome, Sorry. Dave. Yeah. Dave and, and John come back. Come mm -hmm. back, right? Mm -hmm. It's late, probably after midnight. And they continue to party. Mark wakes up, sees john on the on the boat and is like get the fuck off my boat mm -hmm. and um an argument ensues they go down this down below deck and john he knew he'd purchased this uh rifle right uh shotgun actually it was jerome that purchased the rifle that was on that they think it was on board he had purchased a 22 caliber rifle at the same time that john peel had purchased a 30 30 um gun and they bought it from the same gun distributor a year okay. earlier. So John would have been aware of right. Jerome's gun. Right. And where to get it and where to find it and where the ammo was and everything else it was probably because there were kids on board was probably locked up, you know, it was yeah. probably in a, in a cabinet somewhere. Right. Um, so, my understanding is the police, when they boarded after the four, four hours of the fire burning, they did find mm -hmm. a rifle there in mm -hmm. a cabinet. Mm -hmm. so, so he put it back after he, you know, got done blowing everybody up. Um, up. So Mark goes downstairs. Maybe he goes downstairs to get the gun. John follows him, right? Definitely to get the gun. He gets the gun. The gun goes off. The two upstairs, Jerome and Dean, mm -hmm. uh, Dave, 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 Jerome and Dave, um, hear that. They think Mark has killed John. They go running downstairs, right? If they were suspicious that John had killed Mark, 
I don't think that they would have gone running downstairs. I think that they would have run to get help because Mark is not a threat to them, right. but John could be. Yeah. Right. So they go running downstairs. And um, I think that John had just shot. I think I, I really felt like Mark got hit in the chest and was, was killed then. And boom, 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 down the stairs, right? Come um, the two deckhands and he just blows them away, Yeah, right? Blows them away. And then I think it was, um, he blocked the exit. There's nowhere for these people to go, right? From their bunks, yeah. Right, exactly. So then it's just a matter of picking them off one by one. So this whole idea that you'd have to subdue these people to murder them is ridiculous because as we know in mass shootings, a gun goes, if, if someone's got a gun, you just, you go and hide, you find some place to hide. And I think that um, John just very methodically went from bunk to bunk to bunk and just um, killed everybody. I do believe Irene um, woke up, came out because she heard the first gunshot, screamed. Those were the two pops. I think it was right around the time that the two guys came downstairs as well. Um, and then, um, John just has to reload, which, you know, he's got those bricks, right? The bricks of ammo and just pop in the cartridge and just take people out one by one. So, um, and then, um, and then he's like that, you know, now what, right now? Yeah. what? So it's about two 30 in the morning at this point from yeah. what we can, from what we think. Yeah. yeah so like two, 2 AM. Right. So mm-hmm. now what he's got to come up with a plan. So you, you, in our discussion made a really good point that, um, he was probably covered in blood, right? So he's going to take a shower and dispose of his clothes the best that he can. And whose clothes to, does he grab? He probably grabbed Mark's clothes. Mm-hmm. And my theory is because um, the sketch artists, all the sketch artists from the eyewitnesses said that they saw a man with a baseball cap and glasses, right? But John Peel did not wear glasses. Mm-hmm. So my thinking is, is that he took Mark's clothing and his glasses, right? And wore the baseball cap to, to pretend to be Mark mm-hmm. because <clears throat> he was probably the only person on board that had glasses. And so as John is like, well, I've got to get rid of the evidence of this boat because people saw me coming on this boat. Um, as he's um, sailing it out, right? He cuts the, he lets the, the lines, the moor lines go. And he pilots the boat over to the, the cove. Bay. Yeah. The, um, yes. I'll get it in a second, but yes, he goes over yeah, there. So he's, he's headed it's there. like around the corner from the, po- right. the port area, basically out of view. Right. right. And so this is his master plan is to sink the boat. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's got to get back to shore. So he's got the skiff. The skiff is right there. Mm-hmm. And he knows he has to get in the skiff and, and head back um, head back. Well, this is a fishing village. So they're up at the butt crack of dawn. So probably by this time it's four or five in the morning. Mm -hmm. And John is thinking, um, I have to be in disguise. So he shoots Mark in the face. I think Mark was definitely already dead by this point, shoots Mark in the face several times to obscure the fact that the glasses are missing. So, um, it's, it's like, he's just trying to make the crime scene um, look a certain way, right? So if police were like, well, this guy's head is completely blown off. I don't know that they'd be looking for glass glasses fragments, right? Right, right. 
So um, my theory is, is that he was, and if you look, there's a photo, if anybody wants to look up, you know, any of the photos of um, the captain and his wife, he had kind of those square sort of glasses. Yeah. See-through glasses, yeah. Right? Um, <clears throat> and in the three sketches that I saw of uh, the eyewitnesses who saw someone powering the skiff, though it looked like those glasses, mm. you know, the, kind of the thicker rims, mm -hmm. a little bit on the square side. So, um, so I think that John was, um, you know, thinking, I think he had several hours, four hours to kind of come up with a plan. And this was the plan he came up with. And, um, when he, um, opened up the valves to try and sink the boat and it's an $850,000 vessel. So it's going to be hard to sink, you know, it probably yeah. has some safety, safety, um, stuff going on. Um, and it doesn't sink. And his only other move is move is like, well, they can't find these bodies in the condition that they find them in. Um, and I probably left evidence on the boat as well, right? Sure. Maybe his clothes, maybe his blood, maybe something, right? So um, the other brilliant idea is to buy gasoline and burn it, you know, burn it up. So um, I, I just, it, it, it kills me that no one fingerprinted the skiff. Mm -hmm. Like it was just sort of let, they had to move the skiff. I read somewhere where they had to they move did. the skip. Like it was times. in the way. Yeah, it was in the way when he when he pulled it into the um, processing place and docked it and got mm -hmm. off and went to make a phone call to a travel agent to see about getting you know getting out of Craig. Right. Um, the that boat was in the way, so they so they he kept having to move it mm -hmm. and until he could figure out like what to do. Right. Um, but at this point, people still still didn't know that anybody was actually dead on the right. investor, right. and so when the boat caught fire technically people thought, oh my God, the boat's on fire. Let's go try and save people. Right. Unknowing, had no clue that right. what had happened. Right. Right. Yeah. And John was thinking, this is good. Everybody's going to think that they went up in a fire, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, probably was not counting on the fact that they would discover um, that these people had been shot to death, um, murdered. So um, yeah. And the, the whole thing where John... I read that John had had a plan um, to take another boat to go back. Um, oh, and yeah. this was a longstanding, longstanding kind of arrangement. Yep. He was and supposed then, to go back with the Libby eight and yeah. uh, he, he ended up canceling that plan in favor of getting out of Craig uh, within two days of the fire. So that was also suspicious. I mean, it was all circumstantial. Mm -hmm. He had no physical evidence and the crime scene was so badly burnt. Mm -hmm. It was, it was difficult to process. I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure he had time to wipe down the skiff. Um, mm. you know, if he was clever enough to yeah. try and disguise himself and there was, and there was time, mm -hmm. I'm sure he wiped it down. Mm -hmm. Well, he handled it enough. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? That mm -hmm. there was still, I think a chance because the skiff is kind of, a, it's got seats, it's got the motor, it's got, you know, there's, there's a lot of places where you can pick up a print. Um, and the fact that it was never, that they never even thought to fingerprint it. And, and again, you know, Craig is a small place that, you know, the, they probably only deal with maybe some, some drug. I mean, if these guys went into town to buy pot, right. Mm -hmm. We know mm -hmm. drugs are there. Mm -hmm. So, um, the police probably, you know, the biggest thing that they dealt with maybe was a rape, you know, um, it's a town of 575 people. They probably had never been a murder there, much less eight much less a crime scene that's up in smoke right. um, for days. Um, right. So 
yeah, they were, I think, overwhelmed by the circumstance. And John, I think, just took, man, I think he just lucked out at every turn, at every fucking term. Well, what really galls me is he he was awarded almost a million dollars. He yeah. murdered eight people and yeah. ends up walking away with a million dollars. I know. I'm sure it didn't end up in his bank account. I'm sure it did go to attorney fees, but the fact that he ended up being victorious through our mm-hmm. judicial system and being rewarded. Mm-hmm. Um, right. He, you know, he's it's just so abhorrent. It's yeah. so abhorrent. You know, he murders a four and five year old. Were they four and five? Yeah. Kimberly was five and um, John was four. And a pregnant woman, you know, yeah. like, I mean, we, you know, we've covered some, some pretty tough ones, but th- that was, that's my God, that's cold blooded. That is cold blooded. Yeah. You know? Well, he had a lot of hate in him Yeah. for, for the um, Colhurst right. family in general. Right. You know? <clears throat> he had dated John's or sorry, Mark's sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that at one point in time, they were all very, very close and mm-hmm. now he's been rejected. And so mm-hmm. he's ostracized actually. Yeah. He's ostracized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when he's begging for a ride, you know, you can see his point of view, like, I'm sorry, you know, I won't bring drugs aboard. And Mark's like, I can't take the risk. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a drug dealer. I can't take Mm -hmm. the risk. Yeah. So I don't know that John would have seen it from Mark's perspective at all. Well, if Um, he was 20, some odd early twenties at the time, mm -hmm. you're not very mature. Right. Right. You're very narcissistic at that point. Right. Right. Sorry. The dog dog is hungry. (laughs) she's fine no animals were hurt in the recording (laughs) of this podcast (laughs) exactly so um yeah fascinating case um when I first dove into it I was like crap what are we going to talk about because Peel definitely did it you know like my my role here is like yes he's the murderer you know like and scene um but I'm so so glad that we had a chance to kind of discuss it and sort of try and figure out how it unfolded um and it's interesting that the prosecution never, I read this book years and years ago, 30 years ago, um, 20, 25 years ago, <laughs> two days ago <laughs> when I was 29. <laughs> I literally read it when I was 29. Like that's how bad it is. So anyway, the book was by a very famous attorney at the time. I can't remember his name, but the name of the book was How to Argue and Win Every Single Time. And the book starts off by, he's just telling stories, right? He's just telling these really kind of fascinating stories. And he's like, arguments aren't about who has the stronger um, argument. Um, Arguments are won by who tells the better story. And if you can tell a story that the jury can see, wow, you know, okay, drugs were on board. Well, shit. Yeah. Now there's reasonable doubt, right? <clears throat> Why the prosecution didn't tell the story that you and I basically came to a conclusion, like, this is the story. This is how it worked out when it's kind of almost so obvious um, is I don't understand <laughs> how. Well, I, I so don't, inept? again, they don't, I think you're taught to deal in facts and mm-hmm. there was no crime scene. There was right. no, um, most of the evidence was so distorted by the fire mm-hmm. that you're left with speculation. And I think trying to convince a jury to mm-hmm. convict without a reasonable doubt is mm-hmm. difficult when you don't have the solid evidence to back up your speculation right. about what happened. Right. But again, 
all they had to do was tell the story, you know, tell the, like, tell the story. Um, well, the other thing that complicated the issue was you, you had, um, I didn't put this in our narrative, but you had discovered that the prosecutor was having an affair with the judge's right? clerk, right? Um, which made things even not the prosecutor, the defense, was it the prosecutor or the, no, the defense, the defense, the was defense having, attorney yeah. was having an affair. So it was very, uh, incestuous overall. Right? Um, and, and, and I think that the defense attorney did that on purpose to try and pollute, um, the trial, because if he can get a mistrial, right. Mm -hmm. Then the state can be like, well, we only have circumstantial evidence and this is very costly to do this again. Oh, right. So what does he care if he gets sanctioned a little bit? He's still going to, you know, some, at some point he's going to collect. Um, it's a famous case, um, gets national attention. Um, so this attorney is like, yeah, I'll take that publicity. Wow. Well, it's very tragic. And I think the shame of it is, is that, the idea of drugs being dealt off the investor by the Colehurst family mm -hmm. um, taints their mm -hmm. memory and um, yeah. the good that legacy. they were attempting to do. Legacy. legacy, thank you. It's a good yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think Mark had any, he, it would have been far too risky for him to do that. Far too risky. You know, he wanted to retire by the time he was 50. And he's doing so good with these, with the catches, right? Comes in, he's he got is. a broom tied to the mast. Yep. He's killing it. Why? But he also had the kind of personality that he, he would go to fisticuffs if it, if it came to it, you know, he yeah. had a reputation of being kind of rough. Yeah. So, and I think there was also um, the idea that he did not grow up as a fisherman, but in fact, mm. turned his hobby into a life, mm -hmm. a lifestyle that was very successful. I think mm -hmm. it created some envy among people. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. And you know, he, who's this outsider who's coming in and is being so successful and showing, you know, showing us if, if you're a fisherman, you've been a fisherman for generations and generations. Yeah. And, um, you know, here comes this city slicker, uh, coming in and showing you how it's done. And he comes into port with, you know, the Ferrari, of yeah. fishing boats. Yeah. So I'm sure that people were eager to, uh, promote the idea that he was a drug dealer. Or you know, just eager not to participate. A I, reputation. Think, I think I think that um, members of the town did not want to get involved in the case either way, and yeah. they were they were very put off by the way the police were you know pushing them around and then right. the whole drama of the case bringing to their very small tidy little um, yeah. port looks it looks heavenly from a photographic perspective. Right? So yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I think it would have been really difficult to get a conviction despite all the circumstantial evidence. Like you said, um, John Peel is very lucky. I'm disgusted that he ended up, you know, benefiting on top yeah. of yeah. Uh, a horrible crime. So, um, yeah. so, but so what's interesting is like, yes, I didn't sit in the courtroom. I'm not a juror. You know, I wasn't presented with um, both sides of the story, but in just sort of looking at the facts that we have, it's just so obvious to me. Like, there's no doubt in my mind, John Peel did this like zero. He 100% did this. And I don't think he did it with anybody else. I think he did it. Um, I don't think it was, I don't think Mark's murder was premeditated. Everyone else's was. Mm. And yeah. um, the dominoes fell. Yeah. Yeah. So I know. Well. Okay. So um, ne the next three weeks, we're going to spend more time talking about murder and mayhem, <laughs> murder, and, murder and mayhem at sea. Um <laughs> The next three cases are linked by the fact that they all happened around uh, 
cruise ships. So there's some really uh, good ones there. Some interesting cases, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to presenting them and getting your insights around them. So I'm looking forward to giving you to hearing them and presenting my insights to you. Do you like my hat? No, I do not. Goodbye, goodbye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Never gets old, people. Never gets old. I don't even know where that comes from. Like, where does that? It's come called from? Go Dog Go. Go Dog Go. Oh. Yeah, by P.D. Eastman. Huh. I'm gonna have to look that up. Okay. Um, and that I happy just like, note, I just like doing it with you. Thank you. Yeah. And that happy I note. I like doing most things with you. Well, okay, great. And Steering on that happy note, everything I'm to get crying. off this podcast, you know, and I just can't. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you come over on the other side, honey, I'm going to have tears, tears of uh, layers of cupcakes and brownies and cookies and all sorts of yummy stuff. And I'll be like, <laughs> I'm fat. <laughs> no, not over there. You can be spelt. You can be five foot 10, long, blonde, flowing hair. You, get, you adopt whatever facade you want to adopt. Like I am right now. <laughs> yeah. And this, you know, I think um, just to end on this note, because we got to end on a, on a, on a lighter note. Um, that's the really interesting thing is that the spirits that come through um, will present it, themselves in attire that they like the most. So I had a woman's grandmother come through and um, she was dressed in like early 1950s, late 1940s kind of garb. And um, she kept showing me happy days, right? So like there was a poodle skirt and um, um, she just thought she was a cat's meow in this, you know? So no one, no one thinks twice. You can dress however you wanna dress. There's no judgment. Um, which I love um, mm -hmm. because they love fashion over there. They love mm -hmm. to look good. Um, so yeah, I, 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 the more I do this, the more I'm like, wow, that's so fucking cool over there. Can't wait. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Don't kill yourself, people. <laughs> There's always a price to pay for that. So yes. stick yes. around, do stick your around. work, you know, yes. finish, finish what you started. Yes. And then, you know, when it's time and do good here. So you yes, can do good there. Do mm -hmm. some good here. Um, right. so anyway. All right. I love you. Sands. Love you too. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. I'll see you soon too. Okay. Bye right. everyone. Bye. Bye.